Good morning. <laughs> Got to get everything set up just right, you know. Get my walking space and all that set up. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, my pleasure to share the word with you today. And we're going to do that. Did the Sunday school go? They're gone. Okay. I was a little slow on the draw on that one, wasn't I? <laughs> okay. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue this series that we've been doing. We're getting to the end of it called Abiding, Being in Christ and Drawing Life from That. And so, um, we've been looking at the teachings of Jesus to find ways to participate in His life and the results of doing so. Uh, today, we'll continue by wrestling through Matthew 7, 24 through 27, which is a parable, if you will, of, uh, it's kind of commonly known as wise and foolish builders. And so, when we, when I started to think about this, it came to me to teach this passage of Scripture. Of course, my mind just goes, because I've been a builder all my life. I love building things, building the church, building homes, buildings. And so, I immediately go to this whole construction idea and, and off go all the thoughts, you know. And, <coughs> and I'd love to talk to you about that, uh, about foundations. Uh, it basically comes down, in the end we'll see that it comes down to a foundation. And if you've ever tried to build anything on a bad foundation or no foundation, this will really resonate with you. <laughs> So anyway, that's what we're going to be looking at, and uh, my hope is that what I share today will encourage you, it will help us to understand our purpose in the world, uh, and how to wisely set our priorities for the best outcome. So let's pray, and then we'll open up this Word and plow through. Father, thank You so much for Your grace in our life, and we're so thankful that You loved us so much that You came set the example before us of life and goodness, kindness, love, then gave yourself up, suffered and died on a cross that we might partake in your life, Lord, as you rose on the other side of that horrible experience to newness of life, ascended and sent the Holy Spirit to teach us. You're the true teacher. We call upon you and ask you, Holy Spirit, to open our hearts that we might hear wisdom, that we might hear truth, that we might see ourselves, Lord, as we look into your face, and that we might find the path of life. We thank you so much for it, in Jesus' name. Okay, so let's look at Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Uh, okay, now... I'm going to do something that's a little different. These, this version that's up here is the NLT. I'm going to read it off of my paper from the ESV, which is a literal translation. And then I'll explain why I'm doing that. So you're, the words that I say are going to be just a little bit different than this up here. And then I'll explain why that is. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, 
but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So the way that the difference of these two where it says anyone who hears my words in the NLT, it, it, it somewhat um, pulls, uh, it, it's the voice it's the voice of that sentence read in the way that we read it. Anyone who hears my words, that's true. That's a true statement. But particularly, there's a Greek word, when I dug deeper in here, everyone then who hears these words. So there's one little three-letter Greek word that connects this. It's like a therefore. And so what he's particularly talking about here, what Jesus is particularly talking about is the words that I've just said to you. And so, if we're going to be true to context and teach properly, context is really important. We have to keep the story in the story. Otherwise, we start making up, we'll start, you know, we'll do, you know, what I've struggled with all my life. We'll get off on rabbit trails. And so, you've got to rein that in and let the Word of God take us where it wants to go. So, the parable that I just read is the concluding statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, uh, means, the, the use of the word therefore, means we must reckon particularly on the words given in the sermon. So that's what I want to do. Now, when I looked at that and I thought, oh my, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters long in, in Matthew. And we just spent like, I don't know, what was it? It was like three or four months, five months maybe, not too long ago, going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm hoping you retain a little of that. What I'm going to do this morning is kind of just shoot a skim across it so that it'll kind of bring it back to our memory what's going on. And maybe I'll give you some, uh, give you some uh, uh, large, kind of large picture uh, concepts that you can attach all of this to. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as I said, is long. Uh, the importance of the sermon in, tr in church tradition is, uh, it's remarkable. Whole denominations have centered their teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. And they basically, many of the uh, churches that, you know, over the last century that we used to call like social gospel uh, about doing good works and so on and so forth. Many of them were based on just the words in the Sermon on the Mount. If all we had was the Sermon on the Mount, we would have a really good uh, book, if you will, to guide us and to find success in life. And so anyway, uh, it's kind of a whole story thing. Uh, for context, when we look at it, to do good Bible teaching, we have to look at what did it mean to the hearers, the original hearers? How did they hear it? What was their situation? How can we process that and bring it up into our situation now and have it be relevant and life-giving? So we have, to, we have to do our due diligence to be true. That's how we get off on all kinds of strange doctrines and Weird things that we, you know, as you well know, we can do easily. Uh, 
And so anyway, context is really important. <clears throat> the context is, this is before Jesus has suffered and died. None of the people that are listening to this originally have the Holy Spirit present in them. It's easy for us to look through the filter of this side of it, where we've experienced the dynamic of the kingdom. And then we look back and it's easy for us to project all that into it. It's like, oh yeah, okay. But they're hearing, they did not have that. They had their culture, their tradition. They were Jewish people. They had lived for hundreds of years, thousands of years under the, under the, um, uh, the law, if you will. And that's what formed their identity, their culture, the way they interfaced. How well they did it or didn't do it uh, is all the whole story of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, everything. It's all there. And it's come to bear on them. And at the right time, Jesus comes and speaks this sermon to them. And so he opens up with, with the Beatitudes, which you're familiar with, blessed are the poor, so on and so forth. Uh, there's 10 statements that he opens up with, just to give you an outline of the sermon, that describe the citizens of the coming kingdom. He has come, remember, Jesus has come, and he's, he's now come through the waters of the baptism. He's been out through the testing. He's come, he's been teaching, and now he's, and his, <clears throat> his declaration is, the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel message, the preaching of the gospel, is the enunciation, the enunciation of a kingdom. That's what the gospel is. Jesus came saying, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In fact, he's right here. <laughs> the kingdom of God is contained in him. And so now Jesus is with the people, so the kingdom of God has come near. That's what that means. And so what he's doing is he's describing to them in these beatitudes, it's, it's almost a vision. What he's doing is he's talking about the citizens, those who are going to come in, those who are going to be gathered, what they're going to look like, things they're going to do, stuff they're going to experience. It's these beautiful statements that talk about attributes and virtues that we'll have when we come and follow Jesus in the end. But so it, what he's doing is he's, he says these, these 10 beautiful statements that begin to paint a picture in the hearer's minds that people are going to be, they're going to give mercy, find mercy. They're going to, so on and so forth. And I don't want to take the time to go through all of the Beatitudes. But anyway, he follows that with two purpose statements. After he paints this picture of the citizens, and then he says, this is going to be the purpose. They're going to be salt and light. And he says to those people that are hearing, you are the salt. But what good is salt that's lost its saltiness? See, they, they, they're kind of in that place. He says, you are the salt, but they kind of lost their saltiness. What good is it? And then he says, you are light. He goes into the second one. This is your purpose. So he's got this dynamic opening statement of these attributes of the people. Then he's talking about what the purpose is. They are to be salt. They are to be light in the world. In effect, those opening statements of the Sermon on the Mount amounts to Jesus casting vision. If casting, casting vision or having a vision of the kingdom 
is important. Whether we recognize it or not, when we communicate these scriptures and paint the whole story of reconciliation about what's going to come later, when we are carrying that, what we're doing oftentimes is we're, we're recommunicating this vision of God's great plan in the world. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's casting vision in that first section of how it's going to be. He then, uh, he develops exactly how that vision will be brought to pass. If they're going to be salt and they're going to be light, Jesus is going to light this city on fire, so to speak, <laughs> and he's going to set it up on a hill and that it gives light. And so he's, he's in effect speaking of himself, but they don't know this yet. They're just sitting there thinking, probably in their mind, they're thinking about, oh yeah, a city that's lit up. I've, I've stood and I've seen Jerusalem all lit up at night. And it's, it's something else. Yeah, you can see it for miles. You know, when the torches are all going and, and there's life in the city in the, in the evening and we can see it, a city set on a hill. Jesus, in his mind, is probably thinking about the end at the same time. He's probably thinking about this new Jerusalem, this perfected city full of these citizens that's going to come down. So he's probably carrying in him, in his own mind, the full, the full picture. He's speaking to them. He's casting vision to them of where they're going to go, how they're going to get there. He then begins to tell exactly how the vision will be brought to pass. He starts with the law, the Torah. Uh, some, of, some of it's from the Ten Words, the, the Ten Commandments that we would know. We use the word commandments, but they're really Ten, ten Words is what they are. Uh, he, teach, he pulls some things from Moses, uh, from the prophets. Uh, anyway, he has this long list in the center of the sermon of things that we should do and shouldn't do. Uh, he, he challenges us to, um, okay, so, uh, he's talking about this community that's going to develop, and then he begins, the very first thing he does to tell them of the things they're going to do, how it's going to come to pass, he says these words in Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth until heaven, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth pass away or disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. If you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. So... The keepers of the religious law, they, they had an outward, they attempted an outward adherence to the law. It says, keep the Sabbath, uh, honor your father, mother. This was this outward adherence to this code, and they judged themselves. They could stay conveniently distant from it in the depths of their heart, but as they actually just tried to work those, 
those different codes, don't commit adultery, don't lie, so on and so forth. Uh, this was the approach of the law. This is what people did. They did rituals, they did religious activities and so on and so forth to try to keep this law. And they had ways of coming for forgiveness, cleansings, washings, all that sort of stuff. It was all there, it was all attached. But what Jesus does is says, unless you keep all of that law, and this book, if you've read it closely and seriously, they were never able to do it. The Apostle Paul even brings that up. He goes, the law only brought condemnation. We, we wanted to, they wanted to do it, but they just couldn't do it. Everybody sitting in the audience would be hearing this and going, wow. But then what Jesus does is the most, this is hard. If I was sitting there listening and thinking, yes, I, I want to be good. I want to be, a, I'm, I'm hungry for God. I'm, I'm doing the law. You know, I'm, I'm, I've done the law. I've made a few mistakes and stuff. But Jesus then does this. He kicks the can down the road. And he goes, well, I say to you, and he starts rewriting the law. He starts saying, <laughs> you know, about like adultery. If you even looked on another man's wife or another and lusted, then you're guilty. And there, now everybody's like, man, I mean, it's starting to turn the heat up a little bit. I mean, there are people, though, are with him. They're listening to him, and he's talking about this. He's just, he just keeps on going about judging. Don't judge. Well, how, what? I've heard myself and bunches of us wondering how, you know, I know I'm not supposed to judge. <laughs> how does that work? And because what we're doing is we're thinking about, we know we shouldn't judge. Jesus said, don't judge. So I'm like going, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. But it's not... It's still happening. I, I, I just judge. I do. I, I sit in my mind and I play the game and I go, you know, I wonder if that person is saved. Or, and what I do is I set myself up in my heart. I set myself up to be God. And, and of course that's sin. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's talking about how, how this beautiful city is going to come. And then he goes into this whole body of things that are just nigh on impossible to do. I've had so many people come and they say, uh, you know, in the Christian faith, because we can take things too far. And I've at times addressed people, you're living a little loose. You know, there's like this indifference about purity and holiness. It's like it becomes... I've found myself doing this at times as well, but I've seen it in others too. And as a pastor, you know, it's just this is my whole passion is to help people come into fullness. And where you get this kind of, you'll, 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 you'll talk to them about something they're coming up short on. You know, you'll confront them about a sin and lay it out. And the first thing that comes, well, I'm just clay. I'm just a man. And we make this justification and we, we just kind of dismiss it and go, well, Jesus covered it for me. And we're just kind of get this kind of laziness about us. That's the part that kind of bothers me about myself is how do I do that? How, why do I do that? What is it that I need to help, to help stay, in the, stay in the fight? in this process of what I'm really talking about of sanctification and how does that work? 
If I'm making excuses, you know, I'm, I'm sidestepping. And, you know, I'm either that or I'm discouraged because my outward attempt at keeping the laws is failing. I'm, I haven't found myself being able to do it. But I'm lacking, I'm lacking skill. Like, how, how do I actually overcome this particular thing that Jesus said I could do? He says I can do it here, that we can overcome. And I've always been of the mind that there always has to be this upward draw. The Spirit has always got this upward draw. This, it's not that it, he, he's, he is full of hope and kindness. He, he, is, he, is, he believes in us. He knows we can overcome. And He knows there's a way. He has shown us the way. But maybe we're just lacking in that process. And so anyway, that's what, I'm, that's what I believe that this um, is about. And I'm going to just continue down here until we get all the way through this. All the rest of the points lead to the conclusion. Call us to a high moral and ethical activities that acted out. They released justice and goodness into the world. And we are salt and light again. The importance of us yielding um, I'm getting ahead of myself, trying not to get ahead of myself. Okay, back to the hearers. Somehow in keeping the law, they had failed to understand what their purpose was in the world. Israel was set apart to be a light to the nations, to bring life, to reveal God to the nations around them. And they were to do that by having a successful, enduring culture, a growing culture where justice and mercy rose up, where the power of God protected them from their neighbors. This was what was supposed to happen, but their indifference toward that, their sloth in all of that, their inability to keep the law, it did, they never were able to accomplish any of that. The nations that were around them eventually, like chaotic elements, just fell in on them, constantly destroying their social order that God himself had set up for them to do. Does that make sense? So anyway, Jesus is talking about a whole turning. Something is going to happen where these citizens are going to do this. He's given them the commands, and we're going to not judge. We're going to, uh, uh, oh my gosh, there's 50 of them. Forgiving, forgive one another. All of those are in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a long string of them, two, two chapters of it. And so anyway, if I was sitting in the crowd, I would feel a lot of tension. I just would. I'd be sitting there thinking, I'm hearing it. It's a beautiful picture, but I'm falling short. I would start to feel kind of a tension coming up on me. Would you? I, that's what I would feel. Jesus is calling us to these high things, these laws that he's now stretched out. And I'm thinking, boy, I could either disqualify myself, but I'm looking at it. But there's, there's this teacher. He's just, there's something about him. He's speaking and he's just so, has so much weight to what he's saying. And so I would be feeling this tension in my heart. And so now when Jesus gets down to the end of all of that, uh, he 
he now brings to a conclusion. And he says, uh, there's, there's three statements. So we had ten statements and then a long list of commandments of things to do, encouragements of how to behave, to bring goodness and moral, moral goodness into the world, ethical, uh, uh, ethical input, all of that. And then we come down to the, where he closes it. And he uses three things to bring it to the main point. Matthew 7, 21 through 27 says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Jesus, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we performed many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws, or you who practice lawlessness. I think it's dangerous when we think that that the law has completely passed away. When we have this idea, it's like, to me, it's like a badly developed theology, you know, that, well, if I hurt somebody, oh, my bad. You know, Jesus says, don't do it. He says, if you do it, the penalty is death. You know, if you sin, the penalty, the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. That's what happened. If uh, Paul goes to great lengths in his letters about talking about licentiousness and just being able to, this, this easy believing, don't use your liberty, he says, for licentiousness. In other words, we have been set free. And he goes, but then he goes on to say, in uh, Romans chapter 8, this magnificent book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, he goes, if by the Spirit... We are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, then we shall live. And so there has to be this active discipleship that goes on that teaches us how to put to death. We need to capture those things that we do where we fall short, and we need to put them to death by the Spirit. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But, it, but this is what he's talking about. And so there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are going to come into this after, you know, I think Jesus is looking ahead and he's talking about a future judgment day, which there will be. You know, there will be a time. I mean, it's just so prevalent all through the scriptures. Even if we go back to the old prophets and we look and Israel thought, no, God won't, God won't judge Jerusalem. His temple is there. The temple, the temple, they said. And God had been telling the prophets, I'm going to tear down the house. It's going to fall with utter destruction, so to speak. And I'm going to move you out. He's moving us to the true house. We know that now. But at the time, they were relying on, they were relying on the fact that, no, we'll be safe because God's faithful and he, he won't destroy this house. And then, boom, what was that? You can imagine their confusion. I think that this kind of, this thing about Lord, Lord is a little bit like that. When we get to the end, we'll see it. And so there's going to be this time of judgment where Jesus told us, 
He goes, don't think that I've come into the world, he says, don't think that I've come into the world to judge it, I've come into the world to save it. But in the end, my words will judge you. And so this is what he's talking about, the things he says and does. There's going to be a time when, when this age that we're living in now is going to end, and then, and then we'll appear before Jesus. What we're hoping to hear, and what I hope and trust each one of you will hear, is well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> See, but it's coming. And so this is a grace to us. This is not a heaviness. This is a grace to us. When I'm walking through life and I have a lot of this word in me, I've spent my life, as many of you have, putting this word into my heart and I'm making decisions. Sometimes the decisions aren't clear and I'm wondering what I'm going to do. And when I look at the possible, if I, if I just take in wisdom and look farther down the road and see if I do this, what will be the result of it later? Now, I've been in construction a lot of my life. There was one time we were working on a foundation, and John and I were talking about this. We had this foundation that was out by quite a bit. It was like a parallelogram. <laughs> and I thought, we'll just make adjustments along the way, and eventually I'll get it. But I knew we should have stopped and fixed that foundation right there because it just brought untold, you know, and that's what happens. Looking ahead, I was looking ahead and seeing the problems that were going to come. So when we hear these things, I think that Jesus gave us these words about judgment and uh, everything to help us. They're, they're a grace to help us in our freedom of life toward him and living with him. We began to understand what lines up with his word, what lines up with his character. And we began to make decisions on that. If we negate that, if we keep blowing that off, the construct of our life day by day and the decisions we make, start to, they start to tilt off. Pretty soon, man, we've got a mess. And so, anyway, I think that's what he's talking about. And he's gonna say, I'll reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. You who practice lawlessness. So we look at those Ten Commandments, we have to keep them. Plus we have to keep the candy kicked. <laughs> How in the world are we going to do that? <laughs> and this is the point. So Jesus now goes down to the next one. And... Uh, I have a, I'm missing a, I'm sorry, I'm missing a, did it? Oh, it's okay. We're okay. I'll catch my thoughts here. So anyway, he talks, oh, he talks about false teachers. That's what I missed. So the first thing Jesus does when he comes out of his instructions, he talks about false teachers. Beware of false teachers who say, I'm the Christ, but they lead you away. And I should, I should find that and read that actually, um, because it's, it's quite important. Let me find it real quick here. 
these false teachers. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes? Uh, so on and so forth. So he's talking about these false teachers. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Then the next thing he talks about is how these people come and they cast out devils and everything else. They do these outward power things in the name of Jesus because his name is powerful. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Prior to that, he talks about the gates, the narrow gate and the wide gate. He says the wide gate leads to destruction, but there's a narrow gate, and the way is hard that gets to the narrow gate. When we first start trusting Jesus, it can be a little difficult in our discipleship. We can experience a lot of conflict and upheaval in our life. It does not mean that the grace of God is away from us. It means His power is at work in us, transforming us. The transformation is the point. It's the key. It's what has to happen. So we have this beautiful sermon now that comes down through these laws, the narrow gate he tells us about, false teachers that make a broad way. Uh, so-called disciples or followers of Jesus that are not, um, they, don't have, they don't have intimacy with him. It's a relationship problem. They're standing outside, learning the principles of the kingdom, operating the, pr the principles of the kingdom, manipulating. It's basically kind of like magic almost. There's no connection to the Spirit, no trusting of the Spirit. There's just a formulaic using of the name of Jesus, which he honors. You know, people get healed. Even Paul talked about this. He goes, there's many teachers out here that they're an offense. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Yet, I rejoice. The gospel is preached. And so, Jesus is still harvesting his people, but there's a day coming. This is the, kind of the point. There's a day coming for him. And so we have to judge our own heart. I can't judge your heart. But anyway, he goes, but anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. And when the rains and the floods came and the winds beat against this house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. So now the sermon has cast a vision, gave the principles of how to build the house, exhorted about the narrowness of the way in, warned about false teachers, warned about false signs, done in his name with people who are lawless inside, negating the law. Brothers and sisters, you got to beware of greed. I don't know what else to say. Of greed and lust for power, which is greed. 
you know, the, the New Testament, it, it's so easy. And we live in a culture that is just shouting at us all about form your identity, build your, you know, I mean, it just, those pollutions just come in, but we have to, we, we cannot yield to those things. We are to be the salt and light that pushes back against those things. Jesus has brought weight to bear upon a single simple question that each person must answer, to obey or not. Each day that we get up, each encounter that we have in life, whether we know it or not, is a chance to obey or not. It really is. It comes down to that. And I've played games. I know, I know all the stories. I played the game. One time my wife and I were having a, and she says to me, she says, have you, have you asked Jesus about this? And I go, no. And she goes, well, why not? And I go, because I know what he'll say. <laughs> oh, the folly of the human heart. The truth of the matter is I knew what I had to do. I was dragging my feet. But I did it. I was like the son that kind of drug his feet and then went and did it at that point. And thank God for grace. So anyway, this whole crowd of people prior to the cross, remember, nobody has the Holy Spirit, but they've been brought to one simple decision. And without even an altar call, <laughs> every person listening to him had to make a decision. I'm going to obey or I'm not. Too hard for me. <laughs> you know? And they're out of there. So they're brought to this simple decision. Jesus knows that people cannot attain to the challenges he has proposed. But his desire to do, uh, but desire to do what he says is ignited in the, in the original hearers. We know that because thousands of them followed him afterwards. They were wanting him to help them through this. Many of these will be first to receive the Holy Spirit that is given after the cross and resurrection. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross, and then came, then the, real, the, the Holy Spirit came to him. Now, in the Beatitudes and all of those different things, everything that we read in that whole sermon is actually a display of love and how love looks practically in the world. This is how we love people, by doing those things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. And the, all the characteristics, all of the character, the reality of, of the power of the whole message. We can't do it, but he can. He's the one who's building the house that's going to be on the rock and going to endure forever. And by participation, abiding with him, we can enter into that and know that we have an eternal dwelling that's being built. And how does that work down and filter down for me then, personally? If that's true on, that whole, on the whole a vision of the global, it can filter down to the things that we do, the things that we build, whether it be uh, businesses, a church, uh, our home. I assure you that dads and moms that build their families on the Word of God will build an enduring house. You know, there's something, there's fruit that will go from that for generations. And for the individuals, the same way. When the storms of life come, you'll stand. You'll come through it. When, the, when God ultimately transforms this whole world, when Jesus comes again, you'll stand. We'll stand. We'll stand if we've trusted his words and pressed into him. And that's what it means to abide. 
And so Jesus knows that we can't do that, but when the Spirit comes and comes to us, the life of Jesus himself comes to us. The very life and righteousness and holiness of God comes in and takes place, takes up a root in our lives. And as we listen to Him and as we yield to Him, as we abide, as we obey what He says, every action that flows out of us and every simple obedience manifests the kingdom of God and displays His love and goodness in the world. No, we cannot do it in our flesh and by ourselves. We are at best fools building on sandy foundations if we try. Abiding is everything to rest in Him. It's interesting that He brought it down to two choices, and I'm going to leave you with this one because I need to stop. Uh, And I'm sorry I wandered around so much. I got lost in my notes here a little bit, but I want you to think about the tree, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus has brought the people down to one simple decision in this parable right here. Which tree will you eat from? It's like he's taking us right back to the very beginning where Adam and Eve stood under the tree and they chose the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But Jesus himself is the tree of life. And so when we, when we take his word, internalize it, we have a relationship with him, he says, I know you. She's mine. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Everything comes down to faith and resting in him. Everything. People ask me, what do you know? I say, I know this. The best thing to do is to rest in his love and power. Just rest. As we do about our affairs. Rest in his goodness. Learn to abide and listen to him. Do the things he do, the next thing he tells you to do. You'll have an amazing adventure. And uh, when he tells you, stop and do this, go and do that. Sometimes it's a little thing. Go over and give somebody an encouragement. Sometimes it's a big thing. Start a ministry. Gives you a vision. But nevertheless, in obedience is the blessing. And that's really what the, this is about. If we're wise and you want to build, if you want to be on the wise builder side of things, It's just simple obedience. Those who hear my word and do it are like wise builders. Amen? So, just going to come back up and I think prayer team's going to come. If any of you need prayer for anything, if you just want to give thanks to the Lord and somebody and share, by all means, do that.